The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder, the soul and the spirit, and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to take in the word of God under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And we're reminded that he is the one who is the real power source, along with the word of God, always working together with the word of God to produce our own spiritual life and spiritual growth. So we need to make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, and ready to study the Word. So we'll take a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we are in fellowship using 1 John 1, 9, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning, that we still live in a nation that gives us the freedom to not only to worship you, as you have described in your word, but to have the freedom of speech to articulate ideas and concepts and doctrines in your word that do indeed run counter to the flow of our culture, and where we can critique our culture from the absolute reference point of the truth of your word. Now, Father, as we study your word today. We pray that you would give us an insight into not only what is happening in the world around us, in our own culture, but how these ideas do subtly influence our own thinking and our own actions, that we might be able to look into the objective mirror of your word and see the reflection of even those areas in our own lives that that need to be dealt with under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that we may apply your truth in the framework of our own thinking that it might not only change how we think, but how we live, that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 9. Although we won't spend a whole lot of time here, uh, we're going to stop and pause and do a little uh, introduction, reflection on why this material is even in the book of Judges. This is, in fact, a turning point in in Judges and is an important chapter. I think Judges chapter 9, along with 1 Samuel chapter 8, are two of the most significant passages in the New Testament that teach principles related to government authority and the problems of tyranny in government. Now, it's sad to say today that very little thought is ever put into passages like this, and very little is ever taught from a pulpit related to uh, the principles found in these chapters. And that's due to, I think, a number of reasons that I won't go into, but there's just not enough time 
the way sermon preparation and sermon development is taught today to develop significant ideas. Anything that is of tremendous worth and value takes more than 20 or 30 minutes to develop. And when you reduce your sermons to 15, 20, 30 minute little snippets, you don't have time to really uh, help people develop thinking skills so that they can understand uh, how the Bible relates to every arena of life, every thought arena. The The essential issues in life are always ideas. Ideas influence everything. Every facet of our life ultimately goes back to uh, certain ideas. And we have to be able to identify what those ideas are and how they influence our thinking. We can go back historically in the United States to the 18th century and the ideas that came out of both the Puritan theology of, the, of English Puritanism and the revolt under Cromwell in the, uh, in the mid-1600s, the ideas that came out, the Christian ideas that came out of the First Great Awakening starting in the late 1730s under the preaching of Jonathan Edwards up in Northampton, Mass., as well as uh, George Whitfield and the Wesleys, we can think of the ideas that also came out of the British Enlightenment from people like John Locke and others whose ideas influenced the thinking about government and the relationship between citizens and governing authorities. And there was a tremendous amount of writing done. You go back and you read in the Puritan literature of the day, and they thought deeply and profoundly about what the Bible taught about kingship and about authority and about the citizen's responsibility and the king's responsibility. And they also applied that in tremendous ways to theories of economics. And along with ideas that came uh, from the secular community on on, uh, economics, all of this came together to influence the founding fathers and their writing of the United States Constitution. And all of those ideas in, in the studies that I've done is those ideas crystallized only within a certain period of time, only within 10 or 15 years. If the American Revolution had taken place 10 years later, then we would not have the Constitution we have today, simply because as a culture shifts, ideas change and, they, and different people come to the forefront and there would have been a different set of people in the 1790s or the first decade of the 1800s. There would have been a different set of people and the ideas of the French Revolution would have been much more prominent. The French Revolution took place in 1789, and the uh, French Revolution operated on a totally different philosophical framework than the American Revolution because it wasn't grounded. It's, it's always a mix. You know, it's an error to think that, Christ, that America was a Christian nation. There were a lot of Christian ideas, but there were also worldly ideas from, um, from the Enlightenment that entered in, and it, it was a different mix. But by the time of the French Revolution, the radical ideas of the French Enlightenment were much more to the forefront and much more influential. So that would have really changed everything. The point I'm making is that ideas are important and ideas change things and ideas change cultures. And the the point I'm making is that as believers, we need to identify ideas and we need to identify uh, the false, the, the pagan ideas that have entered into Uh, our own thinking, because it affects every arena of life. And we're going to see that in this next chapter. Last time we finished up looking at the doctrine of gratitude 
and the fact that Israel demonstrated a lack of gratitude towards God and toward Gideon because they had no spiritual foundation. They had rejected doctrine. They had rejected all that God had given them and all the work that God had done in history in providing freedom for them and blessing for them. And as a result of their inability to recognize that all that they had came from God, they rejected God at the, again at the end of chapter 8, and they went back to, into the worship of the uh, Canaanite fertility gods headed up by Baal and Asherah. This is what we've seen throughout the book of Judges, is that there is this continuous influence on Israel, and they continually yield to the pagan ideas, the ideas of the culture surrounding them. Instead of going in and rooting out and destroying all the Canaanites as God commanded them, they compromised with them. As a result, the Canaanites survived, stayed in the culture, and had this terrible influence on the future of Israel. We have identified their thinking as paganism. Now, I wanted to take some time just to give you a dictionary definition of what paganism is. So often, people use it in ways that sound somewhat insulting or pejorative, but it is really a technical term, and this is a definition taken from the American Heritage Dictionary. One, the first meaning is that it describes someone who is not a Christian, Muslim, or Jew. That is, someone who does not believe in the God of the Bible in any sense. See, Jews, Christians, and Muslims all in some sense go back to um, the Old Testament God. So it's someone who completely rejects the God of Abraham. Second, it refers to someone who has no religion. That's really a misnomer because even atheism is a religious statement. A statement, even though it's a statement by negation, is still a religious statement. You say there is a God, that's a religious statement. You say there is no God, that's just as much a religious statement, even though it's by, by uh, negation. The third technical meaning of paganism is it refers to someone who is a non-Christian. And then the fourth, which is a meaning we don't use, but is more of a, I would say, a little more of a slang term, maybe one that's more popular, is the idea of being a hedonist. So I'm using it in its technical meaning of, of thought that does not derive from the Bible. Therefore, pagan thought is the direct opposite of divine viewpoint and Bible doctrine. It is called in the Bible cosmic thinking, and from the Greek word cosmos, translated worldliness. So it has to do with all of the thought forms that man develops that are in contrast to the Word of God. Now, they may take many different manifestations, some of which may even be uh, in opposition to one another, but they're all anti-biblical and they're all contradictory to the Word. And they have been defined in James 3, 13 through 15 as the thinking of demons. So all worldly thinking is nothing more than demonic thought because it has its source in a rejection of divine authority. That's the key. That's what makes it the kind of thinking that is demonic or satanic is because its starting point rejects the authority of God and God's right to define the way things are and the way, thing, the way He created things. Now, nothing, as we've said, as we looked at the end of the last chapter, nothing best, better illustrates the ingratitude of Israel than what happens in chapter 9. Chapter 9 is a lengthy chapter, has some 57 verses in it, all describing this uh, odd violent period under Gideon's son by a concubine by the name of Abimelech. Abimelech, 
uh, means in the Hebrew, my father is king. Now, I want to remind you that Gideon, after his victory over the Midianites, was offered the kingship by the Jews, and he rejected it. And he was still holding on to at least a form of, of uh, what the Old Testament taught as truth. He knew God was the king, that theocracy was established under God, but he really didn't have a lot of doctrinal orientation, as we've seen. So in verse 23 of chapter 8, he says, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And that, at one point, is the height of uh, Gideon's uh, development, but it's also uh, the point where he begins to slide into self-destruction because he immediately begins to act like a king, like so many believers who say one thing correctly, but their life and their thinking is so influenced by paganism that they can't ever seem to get their act together in terms of their spiritual life. And Gideon led the nation back into idolatry, the worship of the ephod, and from there... They, uh, as soon as he died, they immediately went back into full-blown Baal worship. Now, let's fit this into the context. We're going to come to chapter 9, and Abimelech is going to lead a revolt. He's going to wipe out the 69 of Gideon's 70 sons, so there's no competition for power. And he's going to go into a, uh, an ill-conceived bargain with the citizens of Shechem. They're going to appoint him king over the entire nation. Then there's going to be this odd little episode where down in verse 26, Gaal, the son of Ebed, is, uh, uh, reacts to Abimelech's leadership, so he wants to lead a revolt against Abimelech, which is cruelly and violently crushed by Abimelech, and then he kills the citizens of Shechem, and then we go on down, and then he attacks Thebes, and in the midst of that battle, he is eventually killed, but it is an extremely violent time. It is a time where we see that there's no mention of God anywhere in the passage. There's no emphasis on doctrine. It just shows the utter uh, depravity of the nation, their rejection of God, and what happens to a nation when God is removed from the center point of their thinking. Because once God's removed, authority shifts from God to man. And once man becomes the reference point, the determiner of truth, and truth becomes relative, and that opens us up to tyranny in every category. So what I want to look at this morning is the relationship of paganism to tyranny. And the point that we must come away with, that apart from the influence of Christianity, there has never been a nation in history, let's revise that, apart from the influence of Judeo-Christian thinking, because we want to pick up the Old Testament, apart from the influence of Judeo-Christian thinking, there has never been a nation or a body of people to experience any level of freedom. Paganism always produces tyranny, and it doesn't just produce tyranny in the government, but it produces tyranny in every single divine institution. And that's what I want to go through this morning, because it's going to help us understand how our shift in our nation the full-blown paganism over the last 30 years has produced a number of, of characteristics, all the violence that we see, the violence in the home, abuse, parental abuse, uh, uh, spousal abuse, abuse of drugs, uh, rampant uh, homosexuality, sodomite activity from, from um, Romans chapter 1 is all the byproduct of the rejection of God and rejection of biblical Absolute. So let's fit this into to the whole flow of Judges because this is why th this book is in the Bible. The writer wants us to see things and to see in living history 
what happens when a people reject God as the ultimate source. We see a decline throughout the book. It starts with the first judge, Othniel, who, of whom nothing negative is said. He is spiritually mature. He operates on the faith rest drill. He has a wonderful relationship with his, with his wife, Oxa. And Oxa, too, is presented as one who is spiritually mature, who has good manners. She presents herself to her father in a, in a way that recognizes his authority and that she plans for the future. But from that point on, that we see a deterioration not only in the spirituality of the judge, but in how men and women relate to each other and how uh, the nation, the citizen, citizenry of the nations handles their problems. The first problem is they get into idolatry and they are oppressed by the Moabites and God sends a deliverer Ehud. And we begin to see even in Ehud's uh, methodology that he is beginning to utilize the same approach to problem solving that the... Um, that the Canaanites around him use. There seems to be a lack of influence or a concern about God, and there seems to be an attitude there that he is self-sufficient, even though God has raised him up. Then we find Deborah, and there we have the God using a woman to judge, not to teach Scripture, not as someone who handles the Word, but as someone who fills the gap because there's a lack of male leadership. What happens in paganism is you see, start seeing the, the developing outwork of the curse in Genesis 3 where the man begins to uh, duck responsibility and women begin to try to assert themselves to take control in the roles that are designated for the male. Of course, all of that is uh, completely rejected by modern 20, 21st century, 20th century and 21st century American thought. Then we come to Gideon and we see that Gideon lacks doctrinal orientation and God has to teach him a few things before Gideon can even trust him to give him victory over the Midianites. This is going to further deteriorate with Jephthah, and there we're going to start seeing how the role of women and how it has deteriorated so under paganism because his daughter will be offered as a burnt offering to God. So there we see uh, an abusive situation and how women are begin to be treated more and more as objects or a means to a goal. And then we see Samson, who is portrayed as uh, more of a sexual predator and very abusive. And then there's a couple of other odd situations towards the end. So we see this deterioration through this whole period as the nation succumbs more and more to the thinking of the Canaanites around him. The writer makes his point very clearly that the nation goes from disobedience to discipline from God, and then they cry out to God for help, and God sends a deliverer. But as soon as the deliverer disappears, once again they operate on disobedience, and they're just right back under divine discipline as outlined in Leviticus chapter 26. So this is the continuous cycle, and it just deteriorates as we go through, um, as we go through time. The theme in Judges is expressed in four key verses. Judges 17.6 and 21.25 are identical. In those days, those verses state, in those days there was no king in Israel. And that's not merely a statement that, well, now we're living in the monarchy and in those days there was no monarchy. But it's a statement that they had rejected God as the theocratic king. God was, under the Mosaic law, the executive branch of government. That's what a theocracy means. God rules. In those days, there's no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. The point is, you take God out of the picture, then the only thing that's left is for people to be the final determiner of what is right and wrong and the final arbiter of truth. 
So everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And in two other passages, the writer makes the same point. Judges 18.1, in those days there was no king in Israel. And Judges 19.1, now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel. Now the backdrop of this is that this, this book was probably written and pulled together uh, during the time of Saul's kingship, when there is a king in the land. And what has happened by that time is in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people got together and they came to Samuel and said, we're tired of not having a king. We want to have a king like everybody else. And in 1 Samuel 8, God tells Samuel to warn the people that if you get a king, what he's going to do is he's going to increase his retinue, he's going to increase the bureaucracy, he's going to increase taxes, and it will be a burden on people. But when people reject God, then they want to be like everybody else. And what happens is they begin to lose freedom. What has happened in Israel, under the Mosaic Law, God gave them the greatest system of freedom ever to be experienced in history. If you were living in the ancient world at that time, you have to the southwest of Israel, you have Egypt. To the northeast, you have the, and, and to the east, you have Mesopotamian uh, cultures. To the northwest, you have the Hittite cultures. And they were all dominated by strong authoritarian kings. There was very little freedom. People were basically inconsequential and they were there to serve the king and do whatever the king wanted them to do. It was a time of tremendous tyranny over people. And if you travel throughout the ancient world and suddenly came to Israel, you saw a nation that had no visible king. There was no visible monarchy. There was no executive branch of government. They had a relatively light tax burden. See, we forget that the level of taxes is directly related to the level of freedom. If you don't have much money, you don't have many options. And if the government takes 60-70% of your wealth, then you can never accumulate anything and you don't have any money with which to do anything and you are basically become a slave of the government. I recently learned that the level of taxation now uh, that the average American pay, pays has surpassed the amount of, uh, I mean, that has surpassed the tax burden imposed on the American col uh, colonies and colonists in the 1760s and 1770s. But nobody seems to be concerned anymore because we don't understand that freedom is related to taxation. And the more we're taxed, the less freedom we have. And the problem is we don't want freedom, we don't want responsibility, we want security. You can have one of two things. You can have security or you can have freedom. But you can't have both. And when a nation has given up God, they no longer want personal responsibility for their actions. They want some level of security given to them and guaranteed to them by a government so they're willing to give away their freedoms in order to gain some level of security. And that's exactly what we see going on today. So judges is an argument that God has given to us to show why it was necessary to have a human king in Israel. God was established as their king, but because they rejected divine authority, once you reject divine authority and slip into relativism, then eventually that is going to deteriorate into anarchy on the one hand. And the only way to bring order out of anarchy is to have some sort of rigid authoritarian system in order to bring order back to, from chaos. And so the response to tyranny is always some sort of strong authority. So because Israel rejected the freedom that God gave them under the Mosaic Law, and because Israel rejected the freedom they had to not have a king, 
the only way God could restore order to this horrible mess that developed in the period of the judges was to give them a king. And they would lose a measure of freedom by having a king. And we see the first move on Israel to have a king in Judges chapter, chapter 9, but it is a kingship that is going to bring with it a tremendous amount of tyranny and loss of freedom. It's going to bring violence, subjugation, and death, and it is one of the darkest periods in the history of Israel. The nation had gone back to Baalism at the death of Gideon, and their focus was totally on material security because Baalism and all the fertility worship in an agricultural environment was designed to produce agricultural fertility so that they would have success, so they'd have prosperity, so their crops would be abundant, so that they would not go hungry during the winter months. And so ultimately everything is motivated by a materialism. But at the core of that there is religious apostasy. There is a rejection of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that always leads to tyranny and a loss of freedom. It always leads to tyranny and a loss of freedom. I want you to turn with me to uh, the Judges chapter 3, or chapter 2. Let's start there. Judges chapter 2. In Judges chapter 2, the writer has outlined this cycle for us. Now, I want to pick up on a couple of words to remind you of what we studied back when we went through Judges 2 and Judges 3. Look at Judges 2, verse 11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Now, that word for served is the Hebrew word abad. A, B, A, and that D doesn't have a doggish, so it's almost like a soft T-H, avad. And it means to work, it means to serve, but it also means to be enslaved. Sometimes it is used even in the context of worship, and there's a uh, nuance there that what happens to Israel, once they begin to serve the Baals, what happens is that they have enslaved themselves to this false worship system, to the false gods. Again, we see that the, the consequence of this, verse 12, or the cause of this, they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed themselves down to them. Thus, they provoked the Lord to anger. Then in verse 13, so they forsook, that is, they abandoned, they intentionally, consciously, volitionally abandoned God, and served, enslaved themselves to Baal and the Asherah. Then flip over to judge to the next page in chapter three. And look at verse six and seven. Verse six says, And they took their daughters, that is the Canaanite daughters, for themselves as wives, they completely assimilated with the culture, gave their own daughters to their sons, and served their gods. They're enslaved to the religious system of the Canaanites. And the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot. Earlier they had abandoned God. Here they forget God. It's a conscious removal of God from the thought, thought system, the conscious thinking of the people. They forgot the Lord their God and they served the Baals and Asherah. They enslaved themselves to this religious system. And then 
It goes on to describe the, the cycle of God's judgment on them. Now, let's stop a minute now and see that there's a relationship to the religious position and the tyranny that results. There is a relationship between their rejection of God, rejection of biblical absolutes, and the adoption of this false religious system and how it works itself out in the culture and all the relationships within the culture. So we'll break it down into several points to try to understand how all of this correlates. So let's look at the doctrine of paganism and tyranny. Point number one. Tyranny is the exercise of absolute power, especially in some cruel or harsh way. It's the exercise of absolute power, especially in some cruel or harsh way. Tyranny is not simply the use of authority. Now, when you get in a society that is opted for relativism, where you or I become the ultimate authority for what's right or wrong, then what happens is we want to think anyone who's exercising authority, even if it's legitimate, is being tyrannical. Why? Because we've rejected authority. And that's what, it, what was happening in Israel. And that's why initially when there is the influence of paganism, there is always this movement towards chaos and disorder and anarchy. And then there has to be a swing back. Then there's always a swing back to tyranny, which tries to bring order out of this chaos. Because what you see happen is that when people reject authority they, they, and they become their own authority, then what in, enters into that is that under relativism, people begin to abdicate responsibility. And when people begin to abdicate responsibility, then they start misusing all of the freedoms that they have. And we see that today with the rise of the drug culture and many other things that are going on. The, the, the media is no longer self-controlling. We have all kinds of examples of the invasion of privacy, of everybody from celebrities to government officials. And it's because there's no longer any sort of self-understanding, self-discipline, self-mastery, any kind of self-authority. Everybody's doing what they want to do. And so they are... Uh, there, there is that push to chaos. And so as chaos develops, and then we see it again in terms of teaching responsibility to children in relationship to firearms. I mean, when I grew up, there were a couple of shotguns in the house at least, but I knew that if I even acted or thought about touching one, that I might not ever have hands with which to touch anything again. And p- Discipline was taught. And when I grew up, as many of you did around here, probably in a rural environment like this, it was not uncommon in those days to see somebody driving around, driving in town with a gun rack on a truck and have a 30-30 or shotgun there and probably kids even going to school. And you would see that. But nobody ever thought of going out and taking that shotgun or 30-30, whatever it was, and coming back into the schoolyard and shooting everybody. Children have always had access to firearms. And if you grew up in frontier America, the first thing you did as soon as that child was old enough to be able to hold a rifle was teach them how to use it so they could start help putting food on the table. Children have always had access to firearms, so that's not the problem, obviously. It has to do with, with their attitude, with, with discipline, with what's going on inside the home, the teaching or the lack of teaching in terms of responsibility. So when there's a failure to, to uh, self-regulate through responsible behavior, then what happens is things break down towards chaos and towards anarchy. In order to uh, provide stability in a chaotic situation, what has to happen? 
you have to exercise firm control. And so what we see is more and more government regulation to try to teach responsibility. But you can't teach responsibility, so what you do is you take away freedoms. If you can't behave with responsibility, then we're going to take the freedom away from you. And so Americans are losing more and more freedoms every year because they have lost or they've abdicated responsibility. So tyranny, the first point, tyranny is the exercise of absolute power, especially in some cruel or harsh way. Thus, it is the abuse and misuse of authority. Authority does not equal tyranny. Tyranny is the abuse and misuse of authority. True or genuine understanding of authority can only come from the Bible. A true understanding of authority and its use can only come from the Bible and an understanding of the triune God of the Bible. It goes back to understanding the Trinity. In the Trinity, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, they are co-equal. The Father and the Son are one, Jesus said. They have the same essence. They share the same essence. Every attribute, there is nothing that the Father has that the Son or the Holy Spirit lacks. So in terms of their essential person, uh, essential being, all their characteristics, they are equal. Nevertheless, there are differences of role. There are differences of role. The Father is the planner. He's the architect of the plan. The Son is the Savior and the revealer of the Father and the one who... Uh, manifest the Father physically in a human body in the uh, hypostatic union. And the Holy Spirit is the one who is responsible for salvation and for communication of truth. So they have different roles and different authorities. The Son is subservient to the Father, and the Holy Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son. And we studied that, especially when we went through chapters like John 10 in our previous study of the Gospel of John. So in the Godhead, there are there is perfect equality of person, but there is distinction of role. So there is an authority structure in the ultimate reality of the universe. Now, that's important because a lot of people think that God created authority to somehow bring control to sin. Well, that's false. Authority is not something that's related to creaturely failure. Authority is inherent to the Godhead itself and has been present in the Godhead throughout all of eternity. So authority in and of itself, therefore, is something that is good and necessary and is not something that is present in order to bring order out of chaos, but in order to provide for the accomplishment of goals in any structure, any society. And one could even say that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the plurality there represents uh, a society in a general sense. Without authority, there's always going to be a trend in one of two directions. Without a proper understanding of authority, people are always going to move in one of two different directions. The first direction is towards absolute authority or tyranny, where there's an abuse or misuse or cruelty or harshness to authority. And the other direction is towards anarchy. Notice, think about this. You're either going to move towards extreme control, tyranny, or you're going to move to the lack of control, which is anarchy. Now, think about that in terms of the sin nature. We all have a sin nature, and that sin nature has two trends. We are going to trend either towards what? Legalism. What is legalism? That's excessive control. That's tantamount to tyranny. 
or we're going to trend towards licentiousness and uh, the lack of any kind of control, which is tantamount to anarchy in the soul. So we always, just as the sin nature trends towards either excessive control or no control, so the collection of individuals in a society is always going to move towards excessive control or no control, always towards tyranny or anarchy. Those are the options. So we want to make the principle, make sure we understand that tyranny is not the exercise of legitimate authority, even in a strong way. Some people are strong leaders. They have a strong sense of authority. Other people who are leaders have uh, manifest their authority or utilize it in different ways. I've just gone through a reading the uh, latest biography on uh, George Smith Patton, Jr., called Patton, uh, Genius for War. And Patton had a very strong sense of leadership and a very strong sense of authority. And then you contrast him with the leadership style of someone like uh, uh, Eisenhower or Omar Bradley, and you see that how they manifested their authority was different, but they all had strong authority uh, positions. Tyranny, therefore, is not the exercise of legitimate authority, even in a strong way, but is the abuse of power and the oppressiveness of power, and usually in some cruel or harsh way. Second point. Biblically, authority is grounded in the doctrine of the Trinity. Biblically, authority is grounded in the doctrine of the, of the Trinity. The principle of authority is not something related to human experience. It doesn't derive from human experience. It's not built on the fact that men are, are, are sinners, but it's grounded in the fact that even in a perfect environment of the Godhead, there has to be authority related towards the accomplishment of goals and plans. So authority, therefore, is related to function and is related to the accomplishment of plans and goals. Point number three, sin itself is a rejection of divine authority. Sin itself is a rejection of divine authority. This is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. God told Adam and Eshah, the woman, she was not named Eve until after the fall, Adam, God told Adam and his wife that they could eat from the fruit of the tree of any tree in the garden. But from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they could not eat. And if they did, they would die instantly. And that was spiritual death, not physical death. But when the serpent came along and said, well, said to, to the woman, well, why, what did God say? She said that God told her not to eat or touch the fruit. She's already changing the revelation of God in her own thinking. And then he said, well, has God really said? And by asking that question, he's putting her in a position to judge or evaluate what God said. So by yielding to that question, by giving it any level of legitimacy, she's starting to put herself in a position above God to judge and evaluate the statement of God as to whether or not it's true or false. And the moment she started doing that, she was on that slippery slope that had only one possible conclusion, and that was sin, because she had legitimized his question and fallen into that subtle trap. Of course, the text says that the serpent was the more subtle of all creatures. So she was rejecting divine authority. This, is the, this means that um, all rejection of authority is ultimately an attack on God where the creature is claiming independence from God. Any time that we disobey God, we, we're basically saying, I know better than God. 
I'm smarter, I'm rejecting what God says, whatever the consequences are, they really won't happen, or if they do, they're not that bad. And in fact, I'll probably enjoy life a lot more. And of course, there's always grace. So all acts of sin are ultimately statements, claims of independence from the Creator. This is why authority orientation through enforced humility is the foundation for grace orientation. We can't ever come to understand grace or have real gratitude if it's not grounded on authority orientation. This is why it's so important for you parents to be teaching the principles of authority to your kids, not by sitting down and giving them a lecture, but by the fact that when they disobey you, there are immediate and strong consequences. There is always discipline there. Because if they don't learn discipline through enforced discipline and obedience to authority in the home, then you, you, eventually God's going to teach it to them. And if they have to start learning those lessons in their 20s, it's going to be through the harsh realities of life that are going to be much worse than anything you can do to your children. And if they don't learn it in their 20s, then when they get into their 30s, it's going to... I think it, the, the, the horrors of learning, the pain of learning authority orientation increases geometrically as you advance with age. So the best thing you can do, parents, for your kids to guarantee they have some measure of stability in life is to make sure they understand uh, the importance of authority and discipline from a young age. We can't learn anything without authority orientation. We can't succeed in any endeavor of life without authority orientation. And we can't advance spiritually without authority or orientation. This is exactly the failure that Israel had. They rejected the authority of God, but what that did was put themselves under an even worse tyranny, which was the tyranny of their own relativism and the tyranny of the false religious system that pervaded and operated in, uh, in Canaan. Now, today, we may not have that same Baalism out there, but there's all sorts of pagan influences in American culture. And if you reject God, you just enslave yourselves to the world system that surrounds us. And ultimately, this is based on the sin nature. Romans 6, 16, and 17 makes this clear. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? This is a universal principle. Whoever you obey at that moment, you are making yourselves a servant or slave of whoever it is in authority. And if that's your own nature, then you become a slave of the sin nature. Paul goes on to say, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin resulting in death, that's temporal death or carnal death for the believer, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Now notice, he didn't give you more than two options. It's one or the other. At any point in time as a believer, we're either a slave to our sin nature or we are a slave to God. There's no other option. So, only when we're a slave to God do we have real freedom. Seems like it's a, uh, a paradox, but it's true. And then in verse 17, Paul says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, the automatic position of the unbeliever, he can do nothing but be a slave to sin. Though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. So we can begin, when we reject divine authority, we become enslaved to the sin nature. And the sin nature is going to push us in one of two directions, either towards control or lack of control, towards tyranny or towards anarchy in the soul. Now this is going to begin to affect a culture. Point number four. Once a culture... 
Now, that may be Western culture in a broad sense. It may be the culture related to a nation. It may be a subculture within that nation. It may be the culture of an ethnic group within a nation. It may be the culture that you have in your home, the culture that's developed in a business. It can, a culture is a term that relates to all of the, uh, all of the relationships and operations within a group of people. So you can bring that down to as small a group as you want to or as large a group as you want to. But once a culture cuts itself loose from the absolute values of God, then it can only turn into itself to look for values. Once a culture divorces itself from God, the absolutes of God, then it can only turn to itself for values. It has to look somewhere for values. Now think about that culture in terms of a family. Once a family culture cuts itself loose from the absolute values of God, then it can only turn to itself. So the people in that family, the mom, the dad, the kids, they become the ultimate determiner of truth and, and, and right. And so they're going to end up doing whatever they want to do, whatever makes them happy. Doctrine may not be a priority, so come the weekend, that's a time to rest. We'll go camping, we'll do whatever we do, because we're going to have fun as a family. Or if they, the trends of their sin nature are going to push the mother and the father in different directions, and that, because of their sin patterns, because of their sin nature, can create all kinds of disruptions in that family culture. If there is a uh, sin nature trend towards alcoholism, towards dependency on drugs, then that's going to enter into that family structure and the, the reverberating consequences are going to be felt probably for two or three generations. And the point is that once any culture divorces itself from the absolutes of God, then it can only turn into itself for values. Now, I want to stop a minute and talk about culture because a lot of people don't understand culture. Let's think about it in a broad sense as a national culture. Uh, culture is not necessarily going to uh, see, going to the museum and to see uh, uh, historically valued art or going to opera or going to ballet. That's not what culture means. Culture is the totality of socially transmitted behavior patterns. The totality of socially transmitted behavior patterns, arts, beliefs, institutions, and all other products of human work and thought. That's one of the definitions in the dictionary. It is, secondly, that's considered as the expression of a particular period, class, community, or population. And third, the dictionary says, it is these patterns, traits, and products considered with respect to a particular category, such as a field, subject, or mode of expression. The point is, it's the totality of all the, all, all the aspects of this social structure, whatever it is. Now, at the core of any social group, is the religious values and beliefs because religion affects values. It affects what's right and wrong. It affects your view of ultimate reality and ultimate destiny and how you get there and where we came from and what the purpose of man is and the uh, nature of man. Is man basically good or is man basically evil, i.e. a sinner? All of that is going to affect what you do and why you do it. So every culture, whether it's white culture, black culture, whether it's Native American culture, whether it's Asian culture, whether it's European culture, African culture, Indian culture, every culture is a blend of ideas. It may be 99.9% pagan and 0.01% Christian. Or it may be as Western, especially British culture was at the height of the influence of Christianity in the 1700s and 1800s, maybe uh, as much as uh, 40% Christian influence and 60% uh, pagan influence. Or maybe it's even more than that. Maybe it was 60 Christian and 40% pagan. 
No culture is 100% Christian. No culture I don't think in history has probably ever gotten before more than maybe 60% influence of Christian ideas. Now, I'm just uh, generalizing there. It's very difficult to make hard and fast rules. But I'm just trying to make a point that we ha- always have to be willing to evaluate our culture from the Word of God. Whether you are a Western European, whether you're South American, whether you're Russian, whether you're Asian, you have to be willing to look at everything in your culture from the light of God's Word and, and correct it. No culture is going to be 100% right or 100% wrong because most of the, our, the cultural backgrounds, the history, habits, traditions, customs, all came out of paganism. Let's look at Western Europe. It, it's popular today in the classroom to always attack white Europeans. They, oh, that's the problem is you've just got all this European uh, teaching. Well, it's really a subtle assault on Christianity because modern European history is the result of the combination of the paganism of ancient Rome and Greece plus the influence of Christianity in the post-Christian era. And there was a tremendous influence of Christianity, Christianity which radically transformed all the barbaric pagan ideas of Greece and Rome. So an attack today on Western, Europe, Western European uh, development, and although there's still a lot of ideas in Western European thought that, that, are, that are pagan, and developed a lot of ideas eventually, especially in 19th century uh, liberalism that's the outgrowth of the Enlightenment, which was a rejection of divine authority, and it ultimately gave birth to, to social liberalism and to uh, communism, to Darwinism, and a lot of other facets like that. We have to always be willing to critique those things, and that's true for every culture as believers. So we have to be able to look at, the work, at, at our culture from the vantage point of the objective, universal principles of God's Word, and then, and then change. So it's very important to understand this aspect of culture. In a culture that is based on paganism, the more paganism that's there, the more it's going to trend towards either control, tyranny, or lack of control, anarchy. Now that brings us to point five. Once God is removed from the system, once God is removed or distorted or misunderstood, then the concept of authority becomes muddled and confused and distorted for the purposes of individual agendas and subservient to the trends of the sin nature. Once you remove God, distort God, or misunderstand God, then the concept of authority begins to get muddled and confused. It begins to get distorted and people start using it for their own personal agendas, and that, of course, is going to be influenced by their sin nature trends, either towards defining authority in terms of chaos and anarchy, and accusing anybody who comes along who wants to assert authority or make absolutes as being, as being just a, a, a tyrant, or it's going to trend in the other direction of uh, pure tyranny. So you, whatever you do to God is going to affect your, the view of authority in a culture. Point six, once the concept of authority is lost, then the divine institutions begin to break down. Once the concept of authority is lost, then the divine institutions begin to break down. Now, remember, the divine institutions are those institutions God established for human society to function, regardless of whether you're a believer or unbeliever, in order to provide stability in, in a nation. And they start with individual responsibility, which is divine institution number one. Divine institution number two is, is marriage. Divine institution three is family. Divine institution four is Government, divine institution five, is the separation of nations. Now, that's, we'll go through that again, so I went through that fast, but I just want to remind you that 
Those are the divine institutions. Once authority breaks down, then those all begin to break down because every one of those is built on some system of authority. So let's look at those. Individual responsibility is divine institution number one. The authority in divine institution number one is volition. Once you begin to break that down with a rejection of, of, of personal responsibility, then the volition is always going to push towards um, at either because of the sin nature tyranny, either towards chaos or towards uh, or, uh, licentiousness or towards legalism and, and some kind of artificial authority. Second divine institution, marriage. Now, this is how it breaks down in marriage. You get into paganism and the rejection of divine authority and distortion of authority, then what happens is in marriage where the husband has legitimate authority and is the leader in the home, then what happens is that the husband begins to either move towards what? No control, where he's just passive and lets the wife run everything. Or he moves towards excessive control where he begins to be abusive. Same thing happens in family. The third divine institution is family, and authority is located in the parents. Well, what happens? Well, we see it in our society. The parents either move towards no control, where the kids run everything, and the parents are so concerned about their jobs that they're never teaching the kids any principles in the home, and they never take time for the kids, and so the kids are just running wild, and they, and they go to school, and the parents think the teachers are the ones who are to teach them uh, discipline and values and everything else, and teachers are pulling their hair out because the government won't let the teachers really exercise any kind of discipline in the classroom, and so you see a complete sy- systemic breakdown in the education system. So that, that's if they move towards no control or anarchy in the home. The, uh, the other extreme, when they try to bring order back, is what? It's a reaction to that lack of control. All of a sudden, there's parental abuse in the home. So there's always this swing from these two poles. In, in the nation, uh, authority is located in the legitimate authorities of the government. But once again, when you have this pagan breakdown, you're going to move towards anarchy in the nation and lack of responsibility and abuse of freedom, and the only way to bring any kind of stability out of that is to impose some sort of tyrannical authority on the people in the nation. So the thing I want us to understand here is this is exactly what happens in Judges with this complete breakdown of authority in the nation because of their rejection of divine authority and their succumbing to pure relativism in the nation then what happens is the only way to bring any kind of order back is through this development of tyranny. And there are certain characteristics of tyranny that's always abusive and destructive. It produces violence. There's a loss of freedom. It's, it's um, destructive of everything that God had promised them as a nation, the health, the prosperity, the abundance that God had promised them. And we see just the horrors of what takes place in this it's almost like a civil war under Abimelech, and then God finally brings discipline on Abimelech. But Abimelech himself is a form of discipline on the nation. Note, up to this point, the enemy has always been outside of Israel. It's always been a foreign power. Now we're going to take 57 verses. Notice the writer has obviously slowed way down here to take 57 verses to get just inordinate attention on those to every detail of this weird event in Israel's history because he wants us to pay attention to the fact that because of this breakdown of religion and the rejection of God that now there is complete chaos 
in the land, and it, it produces this tyranny that is just oppressive and destructive and violent. So next time, when we'll come back and continue our study in Judges chapter 9, and we will go through the episode of the first king of Israel. Always remember that when you're in some kind of Bible trivia. Somebody asks you who the first king of Israel is. 99% of the time they'll say Saul. But the men of Shechem made Abimelech the first king of Israel. So he's not ordained by God, but he is the first king established over Israel. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this time to be able to look at these concepts in your word realize that your word is sufficient for every area in life, not just related to things about salvation and the spiritual life, but that, that is part of that and the influence of that on our culture as a whole. helps us to understand freedom. It un- helps us to understand the role of nations and the role of governments and the proper use of authority and what happens when we succumb to paganism and the control of the sin nature and how that destroys freedom. And the abdication of responsibility leads to uh, disorder, chaos, and anarchy, which always results in a, uh, uh, a counterattack of, of tyranny and excessive control. Now, Father, we pray, too, that if anyone's here this morning, unsure of their eternal life, their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity right now to make that sure and certain. God the Father had a perfect plan of salvation, whereby he sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins, so that salvation is not based on anything we do, but it's based on faith alone in Christ alone. All you have to do to have eternal salvation is to put your faith alone in Christ alone, which you can do right where you sit, right now. You simply have to decide what you're trusting for your eternal destiny, your own works or the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, we pray that you would remind us of the things we study today and that we would meditate on these things and be challenged by them, that they would be used by the Holy Spirit to give us insight into what's going on around us, indeed, into our own thinking and the, own, the cultures that we have in our own lives, in our marriages, our families, and our work environment. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.